2: Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host John Elba. every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business, and this is some straight up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now and listen at adfreeshows.com.
0: you love wrestling podcasts but hate all the ads? Well, you can get all the great podcasts early and ad free at adfreeshows.com. It only starts at nine bucks a month, but you get exclusive series at adfreeshows.com, like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and tons more, and a chance to interact with your favorite podcast hosts every month. See for yourself why thousands of other wrestling fans say adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Adfreeshows.com. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help. And you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? (laughs) I don't
2: want to talk about it. I'm good. I'm good. I am so much better than I was yesterday. Let's put it that
0: way. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear it. And, uh, well, yeah, I guess that's part of life, but let's move along. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about Slambury 1993, a legends reunion. Uh, this is an interesting time for WCW to say the least. And we're covering it because we're like 29 years ago. Oh, looking back God. here. Can you believe it? 30 years ago. That doesn't feel like 30 years ago to me, Eric.
2: Nothing feels like 30 years ago anymore to me. <clears throat> time has lost time has compressed. It's just. Now, I don't, you know, 93, you know, that was a while ago. Get I get it, 29 years ago. But it's just hard, especially going back and looking at these shows every week with you. It's like I've lost all track of time when it comes to relevancy. Yeah. You know, to me, it's, 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 it's just weird. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. I dig it. I dig it. Go back and see things that I completely forgot about, and even though I was there. Um, to relive them again for the first time since then. And that's what Mm -hmm. this one's going to be. I know you sent me a link last night, said, hey, this is what we're going to be doing. Go ahead and take a look at it if you want to. And and, and I didn't because I wasn't sure if this one was a watch along or not. And I love watching them again for the first time. So if it's not a watch along, I don't think it is today. I am going to go back and look at it. I did pull it up this morning and, and took a couple peeks at it. What a fun time this was. I wasn't in charge in 93. At this point, I was still that fly on the wall, you know, third-rate announcer, third-string announcer. First-rate announcer on the third string, to be more specific.
0: There you go. I like that. But, man, it
2: was cool. It was cool for so many reasons. And we'll get into it as, as we go on with the show.
0: It's a cool idea to get all these legends together. So cool that we're doing it again. By now, everybody knows that StarCast is back and it's happening SummerSlam weekend in Nashville. Eric Bischoff will be there. Jeff Jarrett will be there. I'll be there. You never know who will. Well, actually, by now, you do know who's there. Uh, go <laughs> get your uh, tickets right now at starcast.com. You can go ahead and book a hotel and make a weekend of it. Of course, there is a big SummerSlam event in town that weekend. And Boy, we've got some tremendous bookend events for you. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be the 29th, the 30th and 31st of July, right there in Nashville. We're just 3.2 miles away from the stadium, about seven miles from the airport. We've got all your uh, airport hotel hookups and what have you. And you just need to snag a bracelet, man. Go grab yourself a platinum or gold bracelet. Make sure to join all of our different panel discussions, some stuff you can't see anywhere else. And then of course, golly, almost countless amounts of wrestlers going to be at our meet and greets and. Well, a little something special on Sunday. So check it out. Starcast.com. That's dot tcom And uh, without further ado, man, let's get into it. Let's talk about Slambury 1993. Um, Tony Schiavone and I recently watched Slambury 96, which was a shift in focus away from this Legends presentation. And we went to a Battle Bowl look. And that was really the last pay per view before Scott Hall invaded WCW. So Tony and I had a chance to see hey, what did WCW look like pre NWO? And it wasn't that great, as you might imagine. Uh, the show did not age well. But a lot of that is just because I think the Battle Bowl concept was just a miss. You know, it didn't lend itself to uh, you guys being able to have marquee matchups that you could promote. And then there's like this little half-assed battle royal at the end. What do you think of battle bowl as a concept?
2: You know, I didn't, I didn't think about it a lot at that time, um, from a creative perspective, because my head really wasn't in creative at the time. So I, I wasn't involved in that aspect of it really. Um, on a personal level, I never really liked it because it was random. You know, and I, I'm not going to beat this drum to. Any more than I already have, especially over the last couple of weeks. But to me, if there's no story behind something, if there's not an angle, if there's not an issue, it's just action for the sake of action. And I've never, I've just never gravitated towards spectacles. And this and and the Battle Bowl was a spectacle. It, it didn't really have any stakes. There was nothing really to gravitate towards, towards or anticipate. So it just was a eh. Event for me, it was a gimmick
0: really. Well, chat me up a little bit about, you know, the way this it's the best of your recollection, this legends concept comes to be, I just want to give everybody the timeline. You are moving on up a little bit, but bill Watts is gone. So bill Watts leaves in February of 1993. And this show happens in may of 93. So there's not a ton of time between here. We'll say 90 days or so, because I think it happened maybe mid February. So that's probably right. Those 90 days from when Bill Watts was out to this pay-per-view, what was going on behind the scenes in in your life? Well, me,
2: me personally, um, and again, it's really hard to drill down exactly in the timeline where I was, but you know, when Bill Watts left, it wasn't long after, and I'm talking days or maybe a week where Bill Shaw um, came to WC, came into WCW offices. Bill Shaw was the vice president of human resources at Turner Broadcasting, not at WCW, at Turner Broadcasting. And I think by that time, Ted had pretty much put Bill in charge of WCW. And I think it was intended to be an interim type of thing until they found the right person or combination of people to, to manage and oversee WCW, but bill was there on an interim basis. I I believe. Um, and bill came in, he he had a company meeting and pretty much laid it all out and said that this is it. You guys are, you know, WCW is either going to paraphrase get its act together or at this point, even Ted's ready to pull the plug. Mm.
1: There's,
2: There's no more, there's no more runway. This is, you get one more shot, this is it. And there's going to be significant changes in the management structure of WCW. That was essentially the meeting. And I don't think Bill at that point had made any real decisions other than perhaps he was looking for, in Bill's mind, I think, and, and I can't speak to what Bill was actually thinking or what the conversations were between he and Ted, but I think the the impression that I got, because it was one of the reasons why I got excited about throwing my name in the hat, to be the executive producer that bill was of the mindset that even though there were, you know, having wrestling knowledge was very, very important. Having a television background and a television perspective was more important. And I think in Bill's own words, something to the effect of this isn't a wrestling company. This is a television company. Now, a lot of people will grab a hold of that in social media. know believe me, I've discovered over the last week or so, j- just, how ridiculous social media can be. Whew. But the point I think was that Turner Broadcasting is a television entity. And while wrestling experience and knowledge is important, it shouldn't be more important than understanding television and how it works. And Bill made the point that, you know, we are going to bring in new management and they are going to be people that have a more significant perspective on television than wrestling. What are was saying is, look, we tried bringing in, you know, ex-wrestlers to run wrestling, a wrestling company, and it's failed miserably. Bill Watts was the pinnacle of that misery. It was an embarrassing thing for Turner Broadcasting. And they weren't going to make that mistake again. They wanted somebody who was a television person to be in charge of television. That was it. And then Bill left. And in terms of what was going on, I'm probably Jumping to your next question, I apologize, but at this particular period of time, there wasn't a lot of leadership in WCW. There was shared leadership. It was let me take that back. There were there there was leadership and there was management, but the, it it was a combination of Dusty Rhodes, Ollie Anderson, Sharon Sedillo had quite a bit of. Uh, quite a bit of voice at this particular period of time. It was a short period of time, but Sharon Sadella, because of her relationship, I think with Dusty and the fact that Sharon was legitimately, she was the vice president of uh, marketing, I believe was her title, but she oversaw pay-per-view. That was her pay-per-view was her baby, not not booking it, not creative, but because she had a lot of influence uh, as a, as a VP because of her relationship with Oli, for the very first time, Sharon Sadello started speaking up a lot and and had a much more significant voice.
0: So let's, uh, let's recap some news and notes from the observer. This is uh, a direct quote here. Eric Bischoff is telling people he's going to take himself off the air. So another play-by-play man is needed because it leaves Tony Schiavone as the only one in the company. Best bet to get the nod is former ring announcer, Tony Gilliam. Do you remember thinking the same? I mean, we know ultimately you're going to make yourself the lead voice of, of nitro. Was that initially your thought that, Hey, if I'm going to do this, I I can't do both. If I'm going to be in charge of television production or what have you, then maybe I do need to, uh, remove myself from TV.
2: Okay. So that helps me with the timeline. So clearly I was executive producer by that point.
0: Well, that's the question, I guess, because, you know, what we've heard you say over the years here that when Watts first comes out or Watts first leaves, that there's almost like, all right, we're going to divide all these duties up into three different, you know, she'll take care of this and I'll take care of that. And he'll take care of this. And then eventually, I think by 94, it's kind of just the Eric Bischoff show. Does that sound right?
2: No, no. By 94, Bob Dew was, I was still sharing a lot of the responsibilities with Bob do. I had more influence because I started having a little bit of success that got the attention of Ted and bill. So I was getting a little bit more rope, so to speak, but it was still, Bob do was still running the ship. You know, I couldn't make big decisions. For example, with talent that had to be Bob do had to sign off on a lot of that in 94, but this so Slamberry was in May of 93, Watts got let go in February. So clearly, you know, Bill Shaw had started looking for executive producers and interviewing and tapped me for that position. Otherwise I wouldn't have been in a position to suggest that I was going to take myself off the air. Right. Right. Wouldn't have been my call.
0: My, my point is though, you, um, you did, say this, you know, allegedly, why did you think you needed to take yourself off TV? It would have been too challenging to do both. You didn't have confidence in your ability to do it. Um, You felt like you were transitioning sort of behind the camera. Just talk me through the thinking.
2: I've never, I've never been short on confidence. Sometimes it's been misplaced. Okay. (laughs) But I've never, no, it wouldn't have been, I don't have the confidence in myself to do it. I think if, if anything it was more of, all right, I want to take this role as executive producer seriously. And I don't want there to be any conflict of interest. You know, when you, as, as the executive producer, and you look at any, you know, oftentimes executive producers are nothing more than vanity credits. You know, if you were somehow involved, for example, in a more traditional television property, let's say whatever television show you, I'm going to use Yellowstone because it's,
0: a show you One love my favorite shows yeah. of
2: late, you know, if you were early on initially involved in any way, shape or form of bringing that show to a reality, um, introducing Taylor Sheridan to Kevin Costner, for example, if you were, if you were close to Kevin Costner and he, you somehow brought those two together or you brought, you were responsible for bringing the script from Taylor Sheridan to Kevin, whatever, whatever, but you don't really have any significant role in the actual production or development of the show. Well, you get a check and you get an executive producer credit. It should feel good. It's a vanity credit in many, many times. That's why you see so many executive producers uh, attached to either television shows or um, movies Uh, Yes, you're part of it. In some cases, especially in the feature film industry, executive producers are primarily involved more often than not. There's no absolutes. But more often than not, when you see six or eight executive producers involved with a feature film, they're primarily involved in in the money raise, in the funding, one way, shape, or form. They don't have anything to do with actually writing, producing, executing, but they help find the money. So they get an executive producer credit in WCW's case. In my case at WCW with this new role, it was more of a legitimate hands-on. It wasn't a vanity credit. It was a hands-on you are in charge of television. And the, the mission from bill to me was to upgrade the production values of the product, because I think everybody agreed that the production values, the, dis- the disparity between WWE and WCW was so great. You know, WWE has always put a big emphasis on production values. WCW never did. Not really. And that was one of the things that Bill wanted me to do, that Bill Shaw wanted me to attack, was the production value. So I wanted to take that, that role seriously, and I didn't want the conflict of interest or the perception of. How to put the interest. Here's Eric Bischoff. He's a new executive producer. And he's gonna make himself the lead announcer.
0: That would have been horrible. You were doing the uh, TBS Saturday morning power hour show with Larry Zabisco that's syndicated mm-hmm. in the United States, and he would largely continue to do that through ninety-three. And you would also do the pay per view control center segments, which are largely gonna be yours until Mean Jean comes in at the end of the year. Uh so it does feel like you're you're trying to transition. Tony Gilliam, though, is a name that some of our listeners might not be familiar with. Uh, who is he, and and why was he under consideration? Allegedly,
2: you know, I forgot all about Tony Gilliam until you mentioned his name, and I'm and I can picture him. I remember what he looks like, but I think Tony was actually in WCW before I got there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And from what I remember of Tony, is he was pretty, um, he was decent. You know, he was. Gosh, how do I say this without sounding like a dick? Because I can't really remember much of his work. But from what I remember, it was kind of like me in a sense that he could come in and do some of the power hour interstitials, for example, or updates. He wasn't really, he couldn't do, I don't think he did play by play. I could be wrong about that.
0: He did like a WCW magazine segment for you guys. Like yeah. He was like a talk yeah. So guy, I mean, of.
2: he was, you know, if I was a third, if I was, the third string announcer, I was three A and he was three B. Got it. That's probably the best way to say it.
0: So, uh, let's also mention that there's another quote here from the observer. Does anyone know the rationale behind Eric Bischoff's new television concept to cut off the ring announcers, mic during introductions, it makes it like you're watching the television throw through a window from the outside. So this is something that you've changed before, and we've talked a little bit about it because when we did an Eric Fires back once upon a time, uh mister Gary Michael Capetta didn't like that you had adjusted the volumes of his ring introductions and he was no longer as prevalent on TV. What's the thinking here and we don't need to hear that?
2: It was being overdone, you know, the emphasis on the ring <laughs> There was more emphasis on the ring announcer than there was on the match half the time. And it was just a waste, a waste of time. I would rather hear the announcers talk about what is about to happen and give us some background, some stories, some build-up, a reason why we're interested in watching what we're about to see than listening to a ring announcer trying to get themselves over. And it was an experiment. You know, look, I obviously... You know, a great ring announcer can be very, very effective, Michael Buffer. So it's not that I had a thing against ring announcers. It's just that I felt for WCW at the time, we needed to hear more from play-by-play and play color setting up what we're about to see versus Gary, Michael, Capetta, or anybody else trying to become the next big thing.
0: Um. There's another quote here. There are negotiations going on, which you finalized what involve doing the bulk of television tapings at universal studio in Orlando. This is the first time I remember reading about this. Uh, the first tapings in Orlando wouldn't happen until July of 1993. Uh, but it's making the observer, you know, even in advance of slamboree here, was this concept totally your idea? How do you remember it coming to be? Um, was it a challenge for WCW to get on board with, with an idea like that?
2: Uh, it wasn't universal studios. Uh, it was obviously Disney MGM. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was my idea solely. And it was an uphill battle, you know, because if you think about it, like so many of the things that I did, some were successful, some weren't, I just had. Oh, gosh, I hate to use this phrase because it's just so abused, but I can't think of a better way to say it. Everything I did was a complete paradigm shift Mm -hmm. compared to the way wrestling had ever been done before. And, again, let's go back to what Bill Shaw said. You know, this is going to be a television company, not a wrestling company. And I was looking at expenses. And 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 the the quality of the execution, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about this before. But we the, the the television that we produced in venues around, you know, within 250 miles of Atlanta, which is typically what we did, especially for our syndicated show. You know, so WCW Saturday night was produced at center stage and looked like shit as a result. But our our actually our syndicated product looked even worse because we couldn't attract an audience. It just it was horrible and between the visual and that's one of the things that bill tapped me for was to elevate the production values of the show between the visuals that we could attain at disney and Jim studios versus going out to andersonville you know north carolina or south carolina wherever it is and shooting in a small you know 3,000 seat venue that we could only put 500 people in Disney provided a much better opportunity from a production perspective. And from an economic perspective, although it was expensive going to Disney MGM because we're shooting 13 weeks of television there in some cases. So that was a big upfront expense. But if you, spread that out over 13 weeks, the economies of scale meant that it was a much, much, well, not much, much, it was much less expensive in the long run to shoot at Disney MGM studios. And it was to go out and travel every two weeks or whatever it was for our syndicated stuff and come back and have to, you know, try to edit a show together that looks halfway decent and is almost not arable because it looks so bad. So I was, I had some, support. David Crockett was probably, David Crockett and Dusty Rhodes. Dusty was really critical. David, David was extremely important because the changes that we had to adjust to, figure out, um, and making sure that we could do it financially um, responsibly David was really, really critical to that. And he was an advocate. You know, he was like, damn it, if this is what he wants to do, I'm I'm on the team and I'm gonna make it work with him. And he really was a David was a partner. He wasn't an employee, he wasn't a subordinate. And in with regard to the Disney MGM Disney MGM Studios initiative, David was a true partner and helped figure things out in ways that I couldn't frankly. So David was there. And ironically, because this was so antithetical going to Disney MGM studios to produce, it was so antithetical to the way things had always been done. Dusty Rhodes was right there with David. Had Dusty not tagged in and supported it, it would have been so much more difficult. Because the rank and file, the roster, even people within the company, and unfortunately, some people in production were so negative. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is never going to work. This is a horrible idea. I can't believe we're doing this. And it was just because it was change. You know, people don't like change. Humans don't like change, generally. We're creatures of habit, inherently. Very few people embrace change, especially radical change. So I would say 75% of the people on WCW roster included were against it and didn't want to do it. Some of them were very vocal about it. Ole Anderson was the most vocal about it. He, he It was like I was the devil incarnate for, you know, attempting this. Um, and there were others around Ole. In management, there were people that just didn't want to do it. But there were some who did, and and it worked for what we had to do, not what we wanted to do. We would have much, I would have much preferred to be able to go to Rome, Georgia, and put 2,500 people in the arena and make it look halfway decent. I would have preferred that, but it was impossible. We torched every arena, every market within 250 miles, you know, had for the previous two or three years to the point where you couldn't. If you were giving money away, you might not be able to attract an audience. So we were forced into it, and there was some support, but it was really, really slim. Man, Keith Mitchell was on board as well, um, but Keith wasn't out front of it like David Crockett was. Dusty Rubs, though, Dusty Dusty rallied the troops, and that's one of the reasons. not not that's one of many reasons why you know I have so much respect for Dusty because Dusty was willing to try, Dusty was willing to try things. Dusty wasn't afraid of change. Right. He, in many ways, Dusty, I think was looking forward to Disney. Uh,
0: who was against it? Do you recall? Like, was there one name in particular that. Um, oh, well,
2: Ollie for sure. And, and Ollie had a pretty loud voice, even though he wasn't really, um, he wasn't senior management and in, entitled. In he had an office right around the corner from Bob Dews. And, you know, Sharon Sidello and Bob Doe were very tight, which meant that Oli was spending a lot of time. in Bob Doe was effectively my boss. Well, it was kind of a dotted line thing. Um, he, Bob and I both reported to Bill Shaw. So, but Bob Doe ran everything but television. So Oli being the loudest voice that reverberated, if you will, down the hall and there were any number of people that were against it of course the entire you know dirt sheet universe thought it was a dumb idea and guys like jim barnett and gary jester and those who kind of woke up every morning and had had dirt for breakfast um they were very much against it but they didn't have they didn't have any real influence they were just kind of like a pimple on on, it's like having a pimple on your ass you know it's not going to really slow you down but every time you sit down it's a little uncomfortable that's kind of where they were at
0: i guess i wanted to ask is this a change that even ted turner would have had to be involved in is he improving this or is this not something that reaches his desk
2: no it once bill bill shaw signed off on it it was a go and you know maybe bill talked to ted i wouldn't have known that Uh, i don't think so um but I, I have no idea. You know, I don't know what the level of conversation was about WCW between Ted and Bill. Um, I kind of looked at, you no, know, Bill was Ted surrogate Man, Bill signed off on it. That means Ted signed off on it, but I don't know if he was actually even aware
0: of it. Well, it, it's obviously something that, you know, everybody was on board with and you guys had to be comfortable getting in bed with this. And I mean, you're going to be there for five years uh, until 1998. Speaking of getting in bed, Eric and I love climbing in bed these days because we're going to be the right temperature. The not perfect together, temp-
2: not together. People are going to run wild with that.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's accurate. Eric and I have never actually shared a bed yet. Uh, we got close <laughs> last weekend in Oshkosh, but it didn't happen. Anyway, temperature controlled sleep repairs muscles after a hard day's work and improves cognitive function to strengthen athletic readiness. And that's why this Memorial day, Chili sleep is working with veterans organizations to support our hero's sleep and recovery, too. Let me explain. Chili Sleep makes customizable, climate-controlled sleep solutions that improve your entire well-being. These water-based, temperature-controlled mattress toppers fit over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. It's almost like a smart thermostat for your bed. Their cooling technology leverages water's amazing thermal powers for deep, restorative sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Recently, Chili Sleep partnered with the Independence Fund for Memorial Day to donate sleep systems and to show gratitude to our veterans. Plus, U.S. military and veterans can get a special savings at our checkout through Memorial Day weekend. But if you've been having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or you find yourself fighting with the covers or flipping that pillow, dude, you need a Chili Sleep. Prior to Chili Sleep, I slept like six hours a night, Now I'm sleeping seven, eight, nine hours a night and I have bright, vivid, colorful dreams and man, I'm colorblind. I'm telling you, I feel better. I know I'm more productive and you will be too. Head over to chillysleepcom forward slash 83 weeks to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for 83 weeks listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I sleep.com slash 83 weeks. To take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. That's chillysleep.com forward slash 83 weeks. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload Anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com/slash terms for details. So let's um let's tag in here and talk about script writers. Quote: Script writers started writing some of the interviews the guys have to do this past week. Expect more cute puns and less I hate your guts and here's why interviews. Just a hunch, but that would seem to me to be a sign of Eric Bischoff's power as opposed to a Dusty Rhodes or Ole Anderson. Now, that's an interesting report, and it's kind of interesting that he points the finger at you. What's your response? He's right. I was the
2: one that decided to bring writers in professional writers, because there was no structure. There was no organization. There was no real thought for the most part in the way interviews were produced. And I believed back in 93, as I still do today, probably more so today than ever, that a traditional structure, whether it's to an interview, to a wrestling match, whatever it may be, was critical in order to elevate the quality of the product and the way I want to be careful here because I can say things. Sometimes I say things that come off a little harsher than I want them to really, but dusty was great at a lot of things and dusty could cut a promo himself. Oh yeah. Like, like nobody else. Yeah. But the same effort often wasn't, given in in terms of directing and, and what an interview should be to people who weren't at the very top of the roster. And as a result, the interviews were incoherent. They were all over the map. They didn't really tell a story. They didn't really achieve anything other than eating up television time. My goal was to bring in writers to not only help with interviews, but to help structure the arc of the stories within our television. Now let's back up a second, going to Disney MGM studios and shooting eight, 13 weeks of television over a four or five day period of time was a real challenge. And, and it was extremely difficult to say the least because instead of shooting week to week, or thinking week to week, for example, we'd go to Anderson, South Carolina and then for a TV taping, and we're going to shoot two, two weeks of TV, maybe four. Well, that's easy to figure out. You can lay that out, shoot the angle, follow it up, blow it off. Okay. Pay-per-view. It's a you know, it's not that difficult, right? But now take, because that's a four week arc. You can figure that out, shoot it all in one night or two week arc now extend that arc to 13 weeks.
0: And try to have
2: some level of coherence and, and logic to it and flow to it. That's a bigger challenge. And nobody in WCW was capable of doing that at the time. And you go back and you look at, you know, Dusty came out of a weekly territory, not even a monthly territory. AWA, you know, was a monthly territory. So the, the, the philosophy, the booking philosophy tended to be different than that of a weekly territory. Just about everybody in WCW, when I showed up, came out of Florida that was in management, you know, came out of the Crockett territory. Those are weekly territories. So everybody just the, the thinking, creative thinking was very, very short term. Now we're going to 13 weeks. Well, how are we going to facilitate that? Nobody had the experience to write 13 weeks of television um, inside of WCW. So I brought a couple writers in. I'm trying to remember their names now. One of them keeps, uh, one of them sends me emails on a fairly regular basis. I just can't Angelo Grillo. Angelo Grillo was one of the two writers that I brought in. To work with Dusty, to take Dusty's vision over a 13-week period, and then break it down so that when we'd show up at Disney, we would have a game plan, a script, if you will, a format that would help keep everything organized and in line. So that was the attempt. It it didn't work um, well, well enough. Uh, There was some resistance to it. I'm not sure Dusty was quite comfortable working with, Writers, because the writers had a different opinion of how to do things than Dusty did. Obviously, the writers had experience writing 13 weeks of television. They were legitimate, you know, bonafide script writers who think in terms of structure and arc and story. Dusty was a weekly booker for the most part. So there was that clash. Uh, Sharing responsibility creatively was not something that Dusty really liked. You know, I remember when I first showed up in WCW, Dusty would, in, in his office, he'd go in there, and once that door closed and Dusty was in there by himself, you didn't bo- you didn't bother Dusty. You couldn't get by J.D. Angle because Dusty liked to create by himself. Occasionally, he'd have Magnum T.A. in there or somebody else that he was very close to to bounce things off of. But for the most part, Dusty worked in a vacuum. That's how he preferred it. He didn't want to be distracted. He didn't want to hear a lot of, of, of input while he was trying to conceive his ideas. Now I'm thrusting two people who come from Hollywood upon him. He didn't vote for it. He had to get, he had to go along with it. And it was a bit of a challenge. And then, by the way, now add in over the course of 13 weeks, everybody shows up on Disney May 1st. We work for four days. Everything's fine. It goes according to script everything's laid out properly. We know where we're going. We know what we're doing until somebody gets hurt Mm -hmm. or until somebody quits or gets fired or gets arrested and thrown in jail, whatever. (laughs) Now all of a sudden, everything that we've got in the can doesn't make sense anymore. So there, there were, there were a lot of challenges with it, but at the end of the day, it still worked. Despite all the challenges and all the flaws, the obvious mistakes that were made, um, at the end of the effort, it was still very much a success.
0: So there you go, boys and girls. Uh, if you want to point your your finger at who's responsible for scripted promos, uh, Dick Ebersole first started it for NBC for Saturday night's main event in the 80s. But the person who made it a more regular part, that damn Derek Bischoff, ruining our dreams again. just par for course.
2: Yeah, just burn it down, Bischoff. Burn, Burn it
0: down. down, Bischoff. I love that. There's a t-shirt. Come on now. Yeah, it is. Adfreecares.com. 100% of the proceeds go directly to St. Jude's. Uh, let's mention uh, another quote we'll here from Meltzer about the concept of this pay-per-view quote slamboree would have been a great idea if this were baseball old timers day is traditionally one of the best drawing gimmicks for most teams. It would have been a great idea if this was basketball, the legends game is now a successful fixture of the all-star weekend. It would have worked in Japan. New Japan did it a few years ago, and it worked. But in Japan, the ex-wrestling legends like Luthez, Carl Gotch, Lord James Bleers, and Billy Robinson are routinely brought in as either dignitaries or coaches to the current stars, and wrestling's history is well-preserved on both TV and in magazines. So let's take a time out there. Um, why do you think Japan handles and approaches wrestling so differently than America?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, culture, Japanese culture. I'm generalizing here, but I believe it to be true. Having spent a fair amount of time in Japan is a very respectful culture, very respectful at every level on a train you ever been on a Japanese train? I know you haven't. I don't, maybe you have, I know you were over in Japan a couple of years ago, but just moving around the city, you can see how respectful the culture is of each other at every level. I think respect is probably one of the core values of people in Japan. Wrestling, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been to Japan now for a while. But when I first started going over to Japan in the 90s, mid-90s, you would go to a professional wrestling event. And, you know, I went to the events in the Tokyo Dome. I went to the big event. So I didn't go to the smaller, you know, shows out in the country and things like that. But all I know is what I saw. And what I saw you know, the, the first four or five rows of, of men and women that would show up in, at a wrestling event were wearing suits and ties The men. It, you, it looked like they were going to a you know, top dollar prize fight. You want, go back and watch the crowds. If you watch, so, and again, I don't know what the current product looks like, but in, in at the period of time when I was spending a lot of time in Japan, the Japanese crowd because of the nature of the culture were so respectful to the performers. You would never hear boos. They were not animated. You know, they very, even when they were cheering, it was a very respectful, you know, clap. Nobody was standing up. Nobody brought signs. Nobody was trying to get attention to themselves. It was a very almost sedate, but respectful audience. And, even in the media, that culture of respect extended into the way media treated professional wrestling. For example, I remember going to a big, the, you know, the New Year's Eve show, the Tokyo Dome show over New Year's Eve was the biggest event of the year at the time in Japan. And you'd go to the Tokyo Dome when there were 60 or 80,000 people suits and ties and women were dressed up and a polite crowd. And it was an amazing crowd, but it didn't have the kind of energy that a domestic, you know, us crowd would have. And the very next day you would get up and on the front page of the sports of the Tokyo, you know, main, I don't remember what the name of the Tokyo paper was, but whatever it is, um, you get up the next day and professional wrestling at the Tokyo dome was on the, was on the front page of the sports section. It was treated like a legitimate sport by the media, whereas in the United States during that period of time, it was a circus sideshow and was disrespected, often wasn't even covered uh, by traditional media. So there's such a vast difference in, in the way the product was presented as a result of the culture, as the way... Media covered the product. So I think that bringing these legends in in Japan, and I agree with Dave on his point here, you bring a legend in like a Luthes; he was revered because the, 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 the culture inherently respected their elders, respected people much more than they do here in the United States. The media presented them in a much more respectful way and revered them in a sense So it was much, much different in Japan than it was here in the United States for a variety of reasons at the core of it, the Japanese culture.
0: So Meltzer continues. Was this a great idea for WCW as of right now? That doesn't appear to be the case as of late last week, less than 1000 tickets had been sold for the live show on May 23rd at the Omni in Atlanta WCW was doing heavy giveaways and giving out a lot of two for one ticket coupons in the Atlanta suburbs in order to make the house at least look respectable on the pay-per-view broadcast, as opposed to being respectable when the cash is counted. A lot of people would ask, why is this happening? As previously mentioned, bringing back the legends of the sport is a traditional draw in most sports and has worked with wrestling in Japan and Mexico. In addition, the slamboree control centers with Eric Bischoff and Gordon Soli have been some of the best produced segments WCW has done. Surely those segments should have given the event an aura that would make the viewer feel this event was something special and therefore worth attending or ordering there can be nitpicking about certain individuals who should have been brought in that weren't. And in most cases it was because the individual turned WCW down rather than a lack of an invitation. And there are certainly a few being brought in who it would be a stretch to call legends. There's even one Barry Owen, son of longtime Portland promoter, Don Owen, who to the best of my knowledge has never even wrestled, but was plugged by Gordon solely as a long top contender for the NWA junior heavyweight title. whose main claim to fame in front of the cameras is being a below average ring announcer and the son of a promoter unknown outside of Oregon and Washington. But putting a few names aside, this is an idea that should have worked and barring a last week flood of entrance. It also appears it didn't work. So he's pretty complimentary talking about you putting together these control center segments with Gordon. What do you remember about putting those together?
2: Not a lot. I mean, you know, Gordon was such a pro, um, and had the voice of authority. You know, he had so much credibility with the WWE, excuse me, WCW audience at that time. Uh, I was there to provide energy <laughs> and enthusiasm, really. I didn't have the credibility that Gordon had, obviously. Um, so it was kind of a good combination, right? You got, at the time, I might've been, what, 40 years old? Um Gordon was probably well into his late sixties by the time. So you had that kind of voice of authority, the representation of what wrestling used to be in that in, in Gordon himself, I think could have been considered a legend at that time Um, to that, you know, Southeastern audience that WCW largely represented. Um, And he was good at his job and so was I. So it it just worked, you know, it, it was a nice fit. It was a nice combination, young and the old, not that 40 is young by any stretch, but it looked that way. <laughs> With a little bit of makeup. I could pull off 35.
0: The ability to sell a legends concept. Um, is it, I mean, why do you think this was a miss? I mean, it feels like you're clicking all the right buttons. We know wrestling fans love nostalgia. Why do you think this wasn't just a bonanza? I I think in large part because
2: WCW was DOA, you know, there there was no audience for WCW. It had been failing miserably, um, especially in the 12 months preceding this event under Watts. We lost audience under Watts and we didn't have a lot to begin with before Watts, so I just think the audience for WCW was almost non-existent. It was, you know, our, we would do whatever we would do for a rating. I don't remember what it was on Saturday night, you know, and that was just, we were a creature of habit at that point, but we weren't able to draw, you know. It's the reason we had to go to Disney because we couldn't draw a crowd. I've talked about that nauseam. Uh, we just didn't have an audience to get excited about anything. We weren't marketing WCW outside of our, we weren't preaching outside of the church. You know, we had our little choir, you know, our little church, if you will. We had whatever that audience was that WCW had, and we were marketing to them. We weren't doing any marketing outside of WCW to, to reach out to lapsed fans, if you will, or people that perhaps, you know, used to watch the old NWA and didn't watch it any, you know, didn't watch wrestling any longer, which is a lapse, fan, I guess we weren't marketing outside of our television shows and there was nobody watching our television shows. That's one really good reason right there.
0: How? I mean, let's pretend these aren't legends for a minute. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's different about this, right. From all the other. So I guess what I'm saying when I say pretend they're not legends, we're going to leverage the nostalgia. Sure. But I'm saying, I think a lot of people hear this and say, well, they just didn't want to see a bunch of old guys. Okay. All right. Maybe, but I'm just saying let's let's pretend that's not thinking for a minute. Let's pretend it's a regular pay-per-view. There are no older fellows. There is no nostalgia, none of that. If you're going to try to sell a pay-per-view and hype it up, but never actually have the participants who were on the pay-per-view on TV. Well, that's going to prove to be challenging. But that is the decision that's made here. So we're hyping up. You're going to get to see this and that and blah, blah, blah. But we never really see those guys on TV. And I could understand maybe why. Maybe we don't want them to come out and have a, well, less than awesome performance. And then say, see more of this on pay-per-view. But the curiosity factor is clearly what you're leveraging. But you wouldn't try this with any other pay-per-view. I don't think we would would ever try to sell Hulk Hogan in the main event of a pay-per-view without you know, ever seeing Hulk Hogan on TV, right?
2: I could be wrong here, Conrad, but I, I think we used footage when we could get it of the legends when they, before they became legends, you know, when they were active. Um, I think there was probably two, two reasons that stood out the most. One is economics. And you got to remember 1993, we were trying to save as we were trying to stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. More than anything, that was priority number one. Stop the bleeding financially. So sending a crew to Minnesota to cut a promo with uh, a current promo with Baron Von Raschke, That wasn't going to happen. Wahoo McDaniel, you know, flying him into the studios to shoot a series of interviews. That wasn't going to happen. That cost money. So the financial considerations was a part of it. I think the other part of it was a lot of these guys have gotten a lot older. You know, they the perception of what they were was probably considered to be more valuable than the reality of what they are, and that was a part of it. That was a much smaller part of it, though. The biggest one was just the financial consideration. We're going to go to Texas or go down to Florida and shoot Dory Funk. But that's what we were trying to get away from. We were trying to get away from spending money. And it's unfortunate because the the guys deserved it. It would have been better. And it could have been done in in a way that would have added value to the promotion. But it would have cost a lot of money to do it. We just weren't in a position at the time.
0: So Meltzer would say this, um, officially WCW announced two of the legends matches as funk with Gene Kineski in his corner against Bach Winkle with Vern Gagne in his corner and a tag match with Bob Armstrong and Thunderbolt Patterson taking on Baron Von Rasky and Ivan Koloff because of the legit injury suffered by Armstrong and Knoxville. It's questionable whether he'll be able to work, but either way, that match sounds pretty bad. The six-man hasn't been announced, but no doubt it'll include Dusty Rhodes, Wahoo McDaniel, and Blackjack Mulligan. Uh, Who, I mean, are you involved in, in, in helping land some of these talents? Is that a part of your responsibilities? I'm just wondering, do you reach out to Vern and say, what do you think?
2: No, I wasn't. I wasn't involved in the creative at all. I wasn't involved in talent issues at all. So, no, I wouldn't have been involved in it. Somebody may have asked me my opinion or asked me if I had a phone number <laughs> and I, you know, that kind of thing. But I, you know, as far as laying out the matchups and deciding which legends were going to participate or not, I wasn't, wasn't a part of that process.
0: Uh, here's another report. Putting all that aside, the real reason this show looks to be a tough sale is all the emphasis on the legend has taken away the emphasis of the wrestlers today. Up to this point, little has been done for the lineup. Big Van Vader should be wrestling Cactus Jack if they could have capitalized on a rare angle that garnered interest rather than letting it slip away. There seems to be no reason for the company's supposed top draw, Sting, to be wrestling Scott Norton, at least this early in the game. Barry Windham and Arn Anderson have done done little to garner interest in their match, but more people are probably interested in seeing Windham against Flair and Anderson and Flair challenge the Hollywood Blondes. Speaking of the blondes, who are the surprise both in and out of the ring highlight of the entire promotion, based on this weekend's television, it seems more people are curious to see them against Flair and Anderson than Steamboat and Douglas. And while the Dos Hombres idea was kind of funny and well-executed, although hardly original to the longtime fans, they seem to be gearing up for this show, and they've yet to do anything to give a logical reason for a cage match or anything that would even get a cage stipulation over so I guess the criticism is it just feels like it's all just sort of thrown together here. Is this just because the Watts thing is still fresh and we're trying to, I don't know, get our footing.
2: You know, I don't know what the logic was creatively. Again, I wasn't in the process, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, Dave's anti WCW inclinations aside fucking nothing was working. We were DOA. We didn't have an audience. No one was watching WCW. So, you know, putting the emphasis on stories and talent that wasn't drawing. Well, I guess I could understand why you would make that argument, but it wasn't working. And in this pay-per-view, I think the feeling was creatively from a booking perspective, the feeling was that, hey, these legends could give us a shot in the arm and be something different. I think, I don't know. I wasn't in, I wasn't in the room, but just, you know, having been there at the time and just looking at the reality of WCW's business, you know, all of the fantasy booking, dirt sheet, booking, great ideas, bad ideas aside, none of it was working. And this was something that everybody felt like, okay, you know, let's, we, we've got all these other pay-per-views where we're pushing our current talent and we're, it's dead. It's not working. Let's try something different. So I, I get it. I get the criticism. Um, it, it, in many ways, I guess it's valid. In some ways, I guess it's valid. But I also understand the need and the impulse to go, fuck it. Let's try something different because what we're doing isn't working.
0: I love the, uh, the report here that the Max Payne Van Hammer match has been pulled from the show and now Payne will just do a guitar solo, but the other note is about the horseman and relevant. Let's talk about it. Based on what I'm hearing, they'll be reintroducing the four horsemen on the show. Three of whom will be Flair, Arn Anderson, and Ole Anderson. The Tully Blanchard deal is dead because the two sides couldn't reach a financial agreement and someone will be brought in as a new horseman believed to be an ex wwf mid card performer who has never gotten a major push before, but has talent. The legends matches would be a real highlight for longtime fans and even newer fans. If wrestling hadn't most forgotten it's past the day after it occurs, but it won't be. I just hope the audience shows respect for these guys. At least some of whom were the real backbones of the profession in their day. I'm sure the 900 or so who bought the advanced tickets will just hope those who get in with freebies or two for ones can as well. So he's predicting or, or, or hoping that boy, we have a, a polite audience, but it's not going to be something that involves Tully Blanchard. I think a lot of people were hopeful that Tully would be returning to wrestling here after a really long hiatus at this point, four years, I think, uh, since he's been on national TV, we know instead it's going to wind up being Paul Roma. What do you remember about Tully Blanchard not coming in and instead it being Paul Roma?
2: Not a lot, you know, because I would, again, I hate to keep saying this. I wasn't involved in the discussion, so I would, I'd hear about it days later, a week later. I wasn't just didn't follow it day to day. You know what I mean? I didn't, I wasn't aware of the discussions, the ups and downs of it or why, I remember, I remember there being issues. I remember there being disappointment that they couldn't get a deal done with Tully, but I have no idea why. I don't know if it was, you know, past bad blood or if it was financial or I, I didn't, I don't know. Still don't to this day, never, never did get the answer to that. Never asked actually, but I just remember it being an issue.
0: What'd you think of the uh, flair for the gold segment? You had Brian Pillman and Steve Austin coming out and just, you know, really bagging on, uh, Arn and Rick, every chance they get, they're just poking fun. The Hollywood Blondes it felt like had a lot of momentum. And then we just pulled the rug out from under them. Uh, did you think that we had done all we could with the blondes? Were you a fan of their presentation? Did you get it? Talk me through that. Well, absolutely. I was a fan of it. I mean, I,
2: I was a fan of Steve Austin's long before, he became a really, really big deal. And even before Hollywood blondes, you know, I see when we used to cut promos for WCW early on, when I first started um, we were doing them down in the production um, facility, which was kind of, I will not say in the basement, but it was on the lower, lower level, back in a corner of the CNN center. It was a small cramped. It was nice compared to where I came from in the AWA. It was like state of the art but it was a small cramped environment you know you get 10 12 15 people coming in and talents coming in uh, to shoot promos it got to be very very close and tight and it was one little green room that was probably not much bigger than the the studio that I, or the office that I'm in right now and it was the the green room for the studio at WCW so you know, you couldn't help but get close to people and steve had a great he had a great sense of humor he was fun to be around and and I dug him and I dug his work in the ring um, I didn't, I didn't spend as much time around Brian Pillman, I guess, as I did with Austin backstage for some reason. I don't know why, but no, I was a big fan of both of them and I was a big fan of their work. And as far as flair of the gold, flair for the gold, I, I dug it. I dug it. I mean, the performances were phenomenal. You know, Steve Austin was Steve Austin was great at, when it came to improv and, being funny while still maintaining an edge and so is pillman no, i dug it thought it was great
0: it's also written here it's funny that these guys shot past everyone to be the best tag team in the world and they were really just a makeshift team because chris benoit's negotiations to come in kept getting tangled is that the way you remember hearing it that maybe it was supposed to be pillman and benoit and when benoit couldn't you know, get on paper, it just became Austin. Cause that's like a really cool, happy accident story. If that's true.
2: I don't know if it is or not. I was, I up until this podcast, I, this is the first time I've ever heard that Benoit was in a negotiation with WCW to, to team up with Pillman. It could very well be true, but this is the first time I've heard that.
0: Uh, You guys got Sylvester Stallone on board to do an interview that's going to air on May 22nd. Meltzer would say, it's nice to have, but I don't see it helping much. If Stallone were to work the pay-per-view in one of the faces' corners, that would help out immensely because it's a mainstream tie-in that this group needs badly. It wound up being you interviewing uh, Stallone on WCW Saturday night uh, along with uh, Jesse Ventura on the set of Demolition Man, and you're there to plug Stallone's new movie, Cliffhanger, Um, what do you remember about meeting Stallone here and how this whole thing came to be?
2: Uh, how did it come to be? I think Barry Bloom was probably instrumental in that. Barry Bloom was representing, um, Jesse at the time and Jesse was doing the movie with Stallone and we thought, okay, this is a great opportunity for WCW to get a mainstream and, you know, Stallone was kind of a big damn deal at the time just to have him associated in on WCW programming was a step in the right, a, a big step in the right direction for WCW. Because again, people listening to this, that weren't necessarily fans of WCW back in the, at this period of time don't remember, uh, or were too young. <laughs> weren't even watching wrestling at the time. WCW was a very, it was People looked at WCW as a small Southern regional territory. At the time, WWE was doing bigger things with more mainstream celebrities, pop culture personalities. WCW had never done that ever. And for us to be able to even get the slightest rub with someone like Sylvester Stallone because of Jesse Ventura who was now a part of WCW was as as good of a get as we could get at that time. It wasn't necessarily designed to sell a pay-per-view or promote a match. It was designed to establish the fact initially that, Hey, WCW isn't just this little Southern wrestling promotion that it's characterized to be. And it was our first attempt to try to break out of that perception. So, you know, it was what it was. And I thought it was effective. As far as meeting Stallone, I don't remember much about it. He was a very nice guy. He was very professional, uh, very, very giving and willing to do whatever we wanted to do. Of course he was, because we were also promoting his movie. But he was a decent guy. Good guy. Not a decent guy. He was a very good guy. Very professional and very friendly. And I had fun doing the, the interview. It was a big deal for me, sitting down with Sylvester Stallone. And you kidding me? First Rocky movie. I think I saw it seven times.
0: Really? So, yeah. It was a big deal for me. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what else. its a big deal for Mrs. B. Whenever she hears Eric's gotten into the blue chew, come on now. You know, the deal, this episode and every episode here of 83 weeks is brought to you from the 83 week studios sponsored by blue chew. We like to call it the blue chew studios boys. It's springtime. It's time to get sprung with blue chew. This episode, as always, is going to have some information about you and how you can build that confidence in the bedroom. When it comes time to step up to the plate, Blue Chew is a unique online service that by now, you know, delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take these dudes anytime day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is really simple. You sign up at Bluetooth.com, you consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. Uh, Here's the best part, though. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made right here in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And they always say that first impressions are important, but what about lasting impressions? Let's put on a five-star performance here, all right? If you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And boy, do we have a special deal. Check this out. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code 83weeks at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is 83weeks to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast uh, so let's get back into it. And let's talk a little bit about uh, sl- uh, Slam Bree slam fest weekend activities. You guys did a whole bunch of cut-ins from the CNN center. When I say you guys, I mean you Gordon Solie, and Missy Hyatt. It's also going to include a segment where it was implied that the WWF's former nails had attacked Scott Norton in the bathroom, including mentioning nails by name and noting he's going to be at the pay-per-view instead of Norton to face Sting. So before we get to nails, here's what Meltzer said happened with Norton. The basic story of Norton allegedly, as they offered him two grand for the match with sting and they wanted him to put sting over Norton saw he wasn't booked on the TV shows that would air after slamboree when they taped Monday through Wednesday and must've thought it was a quickie blow off since he had just arrived. And this was his first major show since his business is Japan, where he's a top star. He may have thought it wasn't good for his primary job to put sting over on a major U S card, whatever the reasons lawyers got involved. And on Friday negotiations had broken off and Norton went home. Do you remember hearing about this with Scott Norton or, uh, any involvement in the, the nails opportunity? I do remember
2: a little bit because Scott Norton and I had been friends since about 1987 or 88. So, uh, I was on a personal level. I was close to Scott. I didn't get in. Just, Scott just called me. To, you know, I was like, Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, why don't these guys want to do more with me? He was frustrated. Here's the thing about Scott Norton. And I think it's probably still true to these. One of the, he is one of the most loyal people I've ever known. He, he is easy to work with as long as he trusts you. If he doesn't trust you, he can, he can be a challenge. And I don't think he didn't trust Oli. He just didn't. He he was probably right. And I think Dave's reporting on this is probably correct. Scott was a big damn deal in Japan. And while two grand was a decent amount of money back in the day, not compared to what he was making in Japan, and if he wasn't going to be used and he wasn't going to be built, he wasn't going to jeopardize his position in Japan for a $2,000 payday on a pay-per-view. So Scott was frustrated and disappointed, but he made the decision he had to make. So I, I did have it a little bit and not a lot. I mean, we probably talked two or three times briefly over the phone. So I'll, I'll go with Dave's reporting on this one. I I'm assuming it's probably mostly true or accurate.
0: Uh, In the, uh, observer that it comes out on March or I'm sorry, uh, May 31st Meltzer would say this WCW scored first last September with its 20th anniversary clash of the champions, drawing a 3.7 rating, which was much higher than the most recent clashes have done the WWF seemingly beat WCW to the punch. One idea uh, on one idea by announcing a hall of fame and, and that Andre, the giant would be the first inductee. Of course, now WCW is attempting to score biggest based on a nostalgia pay-per-view. So the, the idea here is Dave is observing both the WBF and WCW sort of leaning into this nostalgia concept and, uh, this slam fest that they're doing had two to 300 fans at the CNN center the previous night. It's a, a seated dinner with the legends of wrestling. Meltzer would say all were cordial, but largely stayed in character, and they cut into the WCW Saturday Night TBS show live several times for interviews with Johnny Valentine, Mad Dog Rashon, Dory Funk, Thunderbolt Patterson, the Excesson, etc. What do you remember of this, you know, slam feast? I guess it was, you know, not your typical uh, access or WrestleCon or what have you, but a more sit-down formal dinner. What Eric think of that idea?
2: I didn't judge the idea creatively, but I did dig it. And that's the fan in me. That's all. It's just me being a fan. I thought it was fun. You know, seeing Mad Dog Vashon, you know, here's a guy that I, as a young, I yeah, was a teenager, you know, watching and and kind of being in awe of, you know, Mad Dog Vashon had some of the best promos I've ever seen to this date. Of course crazy. And now to, you know, to be working with them and, you know, it's not like we we're friends or anything, but just to be able, you know, to be in that proximity as a fan. You know, I just I thought it was awesome. Nick Bachwickle, same thing. Vern, of course, it was great to see Vern again. Um and and Wahoo and and others Mad Dog, these were all guys that I grew up watching as a kid on TV. And now here I am as the executive producer for WCW, you know, at, at an event with them. Kind of a big deal to me on a personal level, on a professional level. It wasn't great TV, but my job wasn't to judge it creatively. It was to execute it from a production perspective. But deep down inside, I was having a blast, truth be known.
0: So by now, you know, behind the scenes that Mrs. B is like the guru here on 83 Weeks. And recently, she started to talk to me about something that I was totally ignorant of. NAD Plus supplementation and why it's an important part of your health routine as you age. And as we talk about this, I want to recommend Basis by Elysium Health. It's the most trusted source for NAD supplementation. You see, their product Basis is clinically proven to increase levels of NAD Plus by 40%, both safely and sustainably. Elysium's products target aging at its source. They're unlike any other health company I've seen, And they're at the forefront of NAD plus supplementation. They have dozens of the world's best scientists. In fact, eight of them are Nobel Prize winners. It was founded by renowned researcher Dr. Leonard Garante, who has studied the science of aging for more than 30 years. So I know I can trust them. NAD Plus is found in every single cell of your body and is responsible for creating energy and regulating hundreds of cell functions. But NAD plus levels decline as you age. Lack of sleep, intense exercise, unbalanced diet, sun overexposure, all of that also deplete your NAD Plus levels. Decreased NAD Plus levels are linked to faster biological aging and it can slow down vital body functions. BASIS replenishes youthful levels of NAD Plus to promote healthy aging, support cellular energy and metabolism, and reduce general tiredness to keep you feeling good for longer. Many BASIS customers also report Experiencing higher energy, less fatigue, and more satisfying workouts. Basis is third-party tested by independent labs, both during and after manufacture for both purity, quality, and it's independently verified as NSF certified for sport. So listen, I have to admit, when I heard all this, I thought, okay, that sounds great. But just recap for me. What exactly is this going to help me with? Well, it's going to replenish your youthful levels of NAD plus up to 40% safely and sustainably. It's going to activate what's known as like your longevity genes to promote healthy aging. It's going to support energy and metabolism on the cellular level and help maintain healthy DNA. It's going to support in recovery from workouts. It's going to reduce your general tiredness and fatigue. It's going to help you have healthier skin. It's just going to help your general health and wellness guys. Go to try slash 83 weeks and enter the code 83 weeks at checkout to save 10% off basis, prepaid plans as well as other Elysium Health supplements. That's tribasis.com slash 83 weeks. And use the promo code 83 weeks at checkout to save 10%. And thank you, Elysium Health, for sponsoring today's episode. Well, let's uh, do one more piece of notes here, and then we'll jump right into the show. Uh, Bree 93. Meltzer would say, it appears that on July 5th to July 16th, WCW will be taping 48 hours of TV in Orlando at Disney studios. If that's for syndication, WCW main event and power hour, it means they'll be taping more than three months in advance. If it's just for worldwide and WCW pro, then we're still talking about some shows being six months in advance. This lends itself to an entirely new structuring of the wrestling business. If an angle doesn't work, it can't be refined. No turns angles or title changes can happen at house shows unless they were all planned out well ahead of time injuries or people leaving the company or people holding out quitting simply not renewing their contracts or whatever, which happens with frequency in this business can't be accounted for if TV is taped so far in advance. In addition, expect changes in the way house shows are done, but how that is, is less certain at press time. Those within the company have been talking severe cutbacks in the number of house show dates and even a possible elimination by the fall. It's another example of heavy duty losses. The company has suffered for so many years, causing many internal changes that are going to change wrestling. As we know it may has been probably the worst month ever when it comes to arena business in WCW history. And that's saying a mouthful, a recent show in new Brockton, Alabama drew less than 100 paying fans. And this past Thursday and Friday night in Baltimore going head to head with the cheers finale. And Philadelphia, the next day drew the city's lowest crowd in history, roughly 1,600 respectively. A company simply can't go along piling up such heavy financial losses and a day of reckoning was going to happen. And of course, Eric, you see the writing on the wall, you make the switch. And I love that that Dave just says, boy, this is going to change the entire wrestling industry you sort of alluded to that earlier. You felt like a paradigm shift was needed, even if you hate the phrase, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, what, what are your options? Yeah. Now here, here's the reality. The reality is you've been losing money hand over fist since day one with your house shows. WCW was never profitable in the house show business ever, ever. And it was only getting worse as time went on. You have no choice, but to change things. And it wasn't an ideal situation. It was potentially fraught with all kinds of challenges, none of which were worse than continuing to do what we had been doing. We were forced into it. You, you know, look, we're, the, the syndication strategy, you know, we're still, and people don't even talk about syndication anymore because it really doesn't exist in wrestling. But at one point in time, the syndication was an incredibly important part of WCW's, what revenue there was. That was a, a revenue stream that had to be serviced. It wasn't like we could say, okay, let's just quit producing syndicated shows. What little money WCW was making um, would have been severely impacted from an ad sales point of view with that decision. So we, were, we had to continue to produce syndicated shows, we just couldn't do it in arenas because as they pointed out, you couldn't draw a crowd. And we all know what wrestling looks like without a live audience or a small audience. It's the shit. So yeah, it was what it was. And it was a very, very controversial internally at WC. I'm sure externally as well, you know, in, within, within the minds of, you know, the dirt sheet media because wrestling fans didn't really, you know, of the 95% of the people that watched WCW around the country weren't reading Meltzer's dirt sheet. But so they they weren't aware of it until after it happened. But those who knew, especially the roster and especially people inside of WCW, it was a radical change. But it's like, okay, your, your leg is full of cancer. You have two choices, either cut it off and maybe survive or just leave it out and see what happens made the decision we had to make.
0: So Meltzer would, uh, recap Bree 93 and say, it's a pretty mixed reaction overall. Personally, I'd give the show a very mild thumbs up because the three main matches delivered great action. The bad matches were kept short and it was fun seeing all of the wrestling history, all of a sudden not be a forbidden subject to talk about, but there were serious negatives like the show lacked any momentum from start to finish. And the finishes were all mindless. But he does say that Davy boy Smith came out stronger than before. The momentum probably is hard to build though, because you're trying to serve two masters. Hey, if you've been a long time, you know, viewer of WCW, you want to keep up with these storylines and we're going to sort of advance the football in that regard, but oh, now let's take a break and let's let's play a legends match. So it probably is a little difficult to structure a card like this, where you're sort of going back and forth from now and yesteryear, right?
2: We had no momentum to try to keep.
0: Okay, that's fair.
2: I mean, that's, that. That's, and again, I'm not justifying anything here because it wasn't my, I, I didn't create the Legends thing. I, it wasn't my bag. You know, my job was to produce it, not to create it. But, and I'm trying really hard not to be as aggressive about some of this Dave Meltzer bullshit as I normally am because I'm taking your cue from our last week's show trying not to be as negative but at the same time I've got to point out that if you've got no momentum what momentum are you trying to keep it's just Dave you know writing about shit and having an opinion and trying to sound like he's a really smart guy he's never produced a show He knows nothing about the business of the business he's just sitting in his fucking apartment typing up shit and having an opinion, it's mostly negative because he didn't like WCW. He certainly didn't like me. He didn't like it. You know, he just he was just being Dave. But just pull pull back from your dirt sheet fanboy bullshit. If not you, but pull back from the dirt sheet fanboy bullshit and and take a peek inside the reality at that moment. What momentum were we trying to keep the momentum that forced us to have to quit doing house shows? Cause we drew a hundred people in Alabama and 1600 people in Philadelphia, which means in Philadelphia's case, we probably lost tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. just doing it because, well, we got to do house shows. That's the way it's always been done. No, man, we weren't, I don't think there was anything to lose. That's a, that's where WCW was in 1993. Try anything. Cause you've got nothing to lose. That's how bad things were. So I, I, I think that commentary and that narrative is just filling space on a paper. Cause you, you're only at 9,500 words and you promised 10,000.
0: So Meltzer pretty critical of the way we use Sting here and that, Hey, Norton sort of put him in a bad spot, but. We're kind of wasting our biggest star here with nails in a five minute deal. We'll talk about the match in a moment, but here's the big thing that I think makes sense. And most of all, whose idea was it to introduce all the legends before the pay-per-view show started with all the money spent to bring all the guys in, which was probably close to the entire live gate. The least they could have done is give them nice introductions. So older viewers and the television audience could see an up close of those who entertained them so many years ago. So it is interesting that we've made it all about the legends reunion, but then they don't really get an introduction. Uh, I've, I'm going to play the open of the show here. It's not a watch along, but I'm just going to play the audio. So folks can hear the opening package and the way we at least just handle the legends at the top of the show. Let's track it.
1: the history of professional wrestling, a chosen few of scale, the peaks of excellence to become legends of sport. Tonight, the greatest of these have converged on Atlanta's Omni for a Legends Reunion. And as we honor the legends of the past, new history will be made as the heroes of the present battle for championship gold and personal glory. World Championship
2: Wrestling presents Slamboree 93, a legend
1: You are reunion. looking live the Having. Good to have you with us, everybody. I am Tony Schiavone, along with WCW's living legend, Larry Zabisco. Great to have you with us, Larry. Tony, electricity has filled this Omni. I feel like a little kid myself. I'm looking at men that were my inspiration when I was a kid. I'm looking at men like the Crusher, who instilled terror in my heart when I was 10 years old. I'll tell you what I discovered the last two days with these guys, and that is this. Time! Time! fears only the pyramids and the legends of professional wrestling fans what a tremendous night we will have capped off by the world heavyweight title we saw the collision yesterday big van vader going up against the british bulldog davy boy smith this is the big night for davy boy smith all i can say is i hope he brought his kryptonite Fans, we are having a tremendous event. Jesse the Body Ventura is in the hospital. He is not here tonight. He is recuperating. He'll be back with us very soon here at World Championship Wrestling. But let's kick things off. As we told you, standing by is Max Payne, along with Norma Jean. Let's take you to Max Payne right now.
0: I'm gonna pull the volume down. We know Max Payne's gonna do an excellent guitar solo here, but this is uh an interesting way to start the show, to say the least. Uh, then we've got a bunch of jacked up bodybuilders who are going to come out and introduce the fabulous Moolah. She's going to climb out of the old, uh, sedan. Let's take a listen. Hi. So i know nobody's watching this at home right now but you've got max payne doing a guitar solo and a ring full of uh, professional wrestling legends i mean just jam-packed and they're all just sort of standing there it's interesting and here's our talking head what's going on
1: this is the weekend we've been waiting for in missy hyatt i know you've got uh, a lot of plans here tonight i sure do but i just want to say a big hello to. Everyone watching on pay-per-view around the world, and especially to my friends up in Canada. Salute, eh? You're going to uh, be interviewing some of the legends that are here tonight. I'll have that opportunity as well. Certainly we have to address Sting. We found out yesterday that Scott Flash Norton, the man that came to WCW and said he wanted respect. Well, he got more than respect. He got the attention of a man they call the prisoner. And tonight, right here on pay-per-view... It will be Sting taking on the.
0: The lights just went out. You're standing completely in the dark now.
1: <laughs> Obviously, we haven't. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty here. We haven't had a chance to talk to Sting. Missy, I know that uh, he's got a lot of things on his mind. Certainly, this uh, changes his plans for the evening. It sure does. I mean, you know, he.
0: The legends are all now piling out of the ring. Eric, what the fuck is going on? This, mass, isn't it? this is the messiest open to a show. I mean, we're at seven minutes and 40 seconds before we see any wrestlers come into the ring, but we don't acknowledge any of the folks who were in the ring, only Moolah. And I, and it feels like, I don't know. Was that just because of Moolah's relationship with the WWF? I mean, that the whole thing just feels no. weird, poorly produced. I don't get it. No, it was
2: poorly produced. Um, the format for this pay-per-view was poorly produced. We did, certainly didn't exploit the legends the way they could have been and should have been for reasons that I talked about earlier. You know, um, Had we produced individual packages for those legends and then kind of exposed them throughout the show to keep the thread and the momentum going on the show, it would have been great. But, hey, it's a lot cheaper just to have them come out and wave to the crowd and establish that they're all really here and then go about our business. It, it, it was the mess. And I'm responsible for some of that. I'm not going to make, make excuses, but here's the reality. I was new kid on the block, yeah, trying to make it look as good as I could. But I didn't format the show. I didn't format. It wasn't my deal. Um, my job was to produce it, to light it, which obviously I, I fucked that up. Or some somebody did. That's on me. But it, it, it was really unfortunate. I had, just listening to this. You know, I, I feel bad for the legends because it could have been so much better. And so many of them deserve to be treated better than they were. It's kind of like, you know, going to a, ever, I don't know. I go to horse auctions just because I like the environment, not interested in buying another horse, but I like to go. And it's kind of like in the beginning of a horse auction where they just bring out all the horses and running them around, run them around the arena. So everybody gets to see them. Then they put them back in their stalls and they bring them out one at a time. We didn't even bring them out one at a time really for any kind of introduction or promotion or to build them or to respect their career. So it was uh, admittedly a really bad show. And we, it's funny. You bring up Mula. Who would have thought that what 13 years after this, I'd be taking a Bronco buster from her with, sardines in her underwear.
0: I mean, I think so that was, you didn't bring that up. I think that was May young, wasn't
2: it? Oh, was it? I thought it was Mula. Was it may? I can't remember either way.
0: There's seven, I couldn't 000. see, I couldn't see anything at the time. That's true. It's true. So by now, if you know anything about Eric Bischoff's personal life, you know that, well, Eric is a bit of a routine man and part of the routine he has every morning, especially before we record this podcast it's hooking up a little kratom. Kratom is an all-natural ancient super leaf related to the coffee plant that's been used in Thailand for centuries. Kratom helps energize your mind and relax your body. And a lot of people say it just helps you feel good without feeling impaired. Super speciosa has only one ingredient. Pure Kratom Leaf. All of Super Speciosa's batches come with certified lab reports, so you know exactly what you're getting. Super Speciosa offers Kratom powder, capsules, tablets, and teas. And this has been a home run in Eric's life. You hear him talk about it on the show all the time. He has tea, it's a part of his morning routine. He thinks it helps him focus. It gives him that boost of energy before we record. And a lot of folks even say it helps them wind down and relax after work. Friend of the show, Cassio kid's wife, who we affectionately call big booty Judy. She loves it as a pre-workout and even heard some folks use it as a post-workout recovery. I'm telling you, you've just got to check out super speciosa for beginners. We're going to recommend capsules or teas because they're easy to use And we're also going to recommend the green strains because they are the most popular. By the way, this is 100% satisfaction or your money back guaranteed. So try Kratom now and get 20% off. Go to getsuperleaf.com forward slash 83 weeks and get 20% off with promo code 83 weeks. That's getsuperleaf.com forward slash 83 weeks and use promo code 83 weeks for 20% off. There's 7,008 folks here in the building, 3,722 of them paid, uh, which is pretty bad for a pay-per-view, but considering how poor the advance looked, it's not exactly unexpected. Um, Meltzer would say the paid attendance was actually lower than the previous Omni house show, although that show had a dollar ticket price. So the comparison isn't really fair. The live gate is $37,000. Uh, when they did Starcade at the Omni, it was $70,000. Either way, it's a disaster. But just production wise, it's the Legends Reunion. And we don't even show them on pay per view the way we should here. The guys who are standing in the ring that are never really officially introduced or acknowledged on TV are Ole Anderson, The Assassin, Ox Baker, Red Bastine, Lord James Bleers, The Crusher, The Fabulous Moolah, Greg Gagne, Bob Geigel, Stu Hart, Magnum TA. Bugsy McGraw, Don Owen, Dusty Rhodes, Grizzly Smith, John Tolos, Mad Dog Vashon, and Johnny Valentine. So a who's who, if you will. Uh, And and let's jump into it. Match number one, Two Cold Scorpio, is going to be teaming with Marcus Bagwell, and they're going to take on Bobby Eaton and Chris Benoit. That's right, Chris Benoit here in 1993, teaming with Bobby Eaton. Scorpio and Bagwell get the win in nine minutes and 23 seconds. When Scorpio pinned Benoit with a moonsault into a leg drop Meltzer would say good opener, but these four had the ability to put together a much better match that was probably limited as much by time constraints as anything. If you have a tape of this, watch the finishing move again. It's one of the most spectacular looking moves of the year, but the impact of Scorpio landing right on Benoit's head. Gives the, gives the new word or or new meaning to the word crash landing. Miraculously, Benoit wasn't injured. I remember seeing this. I started watching, I wasn't watching this show, but I watched again in 1997. I saw this on VHS and thought for sure Benoit was dead. My God, he landed direct Scorpio landed directly on his head. A really scary looking time, uh, two and three quarter stars here. But man, as an opening match, look at that roster too T- T- oh, Scorpio ahead of his time. Marcus Bagwell, sort of a WCW original, you know, young upstart, good-looking white meat, babyface, Bobby Eaton, one of the best that ever did it. And Crispin Benoit at the time had a reputation of being, you know, one of the next big things, just an incredible bell to bell performer, a lot of meat on the bone here for an opening match that feels like it's all about the legends.
2: Yeah. And and I don't know. know, I I don't know the answer to this question. I would be asking it, but where had Benoit been prior to this? Do you, do you know, other than Japan?
0: Yeah, we saw him at super brawl 93 in singles action against Scorpio. So he's been flirting around for a little bit, but yeah, he had wrestled in Canada. He had wrestled in, in, uh, in Europe. He had certainly been in Japan. Uh, he had been all over the place, but everyone was, was really excited to see him get his big break here. And of course we know he winds up spending a little bit of time in an ECW and then becomes a, a regular part of what you guys are doing in WCW.
2: So he had really not had any domestic U S exposure. No, you're giving television that at least at this point. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, up next, we've got an unannounced match. Sid vicious is going to power bomb Van hammer in 35 seconds. Meltzer would say, Sid got a big baby face pop, which should come as no surprise since he always did before. So it makes perfect sense. Making him a heel, at least it was short. I can't imagine what gets into these people who run this company to wave red flags at the DEA. So of course in this era, we're still having regular conversations about steroid testing and Sid vicious comes out looking like he is the poster child of that, uh, dud is the rating that it gets, but man. As critical as people in the newsletters may have been of Sid, the dude got a, got a reaction from the crowd, and a lot of it was his presentation. Giant man, all jacked up, had the great facials. He was a perfect, quote-unquote, wrestling character. One of my guilty pleasures, no matter what they said about him in the newsletters, right? He
2: certainly wasn't alone when it came to doing steroids, was he? I no. mean, I, I, clearly, Dave is you know, putting a target on him right now, but I think, you know, you could probably pointed that rifle in almost any direction inside of almost any locker room and been able to pull the trigger, find somebody that was guilty of the same thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Sid was, uh, Sid was Sid at the time, but he did have that great look and that's what the audience was responding to. Uh,
0: in, in a legends match, we get Wahoo McDaniel. Who's 54 blackjack Mulligan. Who's 52. And Jim Brunzel, who were 43, going to a double disqualification with Jimmy Snuka, Don Morocco, and Dick Murdoch. Snuka's 49, Morocco's 44, Murdoch is 47. So this is presented as if, hey, look at these old guys. And in reality, they're all younger than Sting today and about Chris Jericho's age right now. So.
2: Man, about CM Punk's age. What is CM Punk, 43?
0: Yeah, just the saying legends it's, are it's it's interesting how, you know, our perception of time and age changes. Mm-hmm. Maybe that some of that's just, you know, our self-care routine, some of it's technology. I, I don't know. But I just know that, man, I, when I see Sting today, I don't think of Sting as being old, and I don't think of Jericho as being an old. And
2: well, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I think part of that is because today, you know, a a lot of these guys have stayed active, you know, take Sting, for example, you know, now he's not been active week in and week out, but you know, he left WCW or when WCW was sold to WWE, Sting was active in TNA. He was out a couple after TNA went out of business. Um, He was out for a little while and ended up, you know, in WWE for a cup of coffee and then shortly after WWE, he's now in AEW a, in a in a high profile kind of way. So he's not out of sight, out of mind, you know. And I think part of it was with a lot of these guys. Even you know, Wahoo. I, it's funny you say he was only fifty four at that time. You know, I remember at that point, you know, Wahoo looked a lot older, you know, than I did at that time, right? But even at fifty four, you know, he wasn't that old. I guess old enough to be considered a legend. But a lot of these guys had been away from the public eye for an extended period of time. And I think that probably put them in the category of being legends as much as just their age.
0: I, I totally agree with that. Uh, Meltzer would even compliment snooker saying snooker seemed to think this was his tryout for getting a new job as he was ripped as in physique, not the other definition of ripped. It took one great bump out of the ring. And I haven't seen Mulligan this active since the civil war. <laughs> so, you know, it it, it kind of is what it is. They're going to ring the bell. It's going to be a double DQ. Meltzer calls it the first of many lame finishes star in three quarters. But man, Wahoo McDaniel, Blackjack Mulligan, Jim Brunzel, Jimmy Snuka, Don Morocco, Dick Murdoch. I could see why that would be, that would be fun. You know, I mean, especially when these days we should mention MVP and edge are 49. Goldberg is 55. Our truth is 50. Bobby Lashley is 45. Um, it's fun to say
2: it is, but, but again, everything is so much different now, right? A lot of these guys you're talking about, you know, look at Bobby Lashley, what a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete that's everybody's learned how to take care of themselves and extend their active careers in the industry. Um, they eat better. They, they don't probably participate. You know, you look at that, look at those legends in that ring. There's a fair amount of (laughs) self-harm that was done in terms of, you know, lifestyle uh, in that day that I don't think exists today with a lot of the names that you mentioned, you know, guys today are truly professional athletes compared to back in the day when they were talented, no doubt about it, but they were, they lived life and they paid the price
0: for it. Uh, this is the write-up from The Observer. Eric Bischoff interviewed the assassin Jody Hamilton and Mad Dog Vashon, assassin who needs to buy a new mask because this one only covered three of his six chins, challenged Dusty oh, Rhodes God, again. that was so cool. And when the show was <laughs> over, you could speculate as why they spent so much time building a feud between these two. So this is a little weird because assassin's not going to wrestle Dusty Rhodes, but yet here they are using pay-per-view time for it. This is uh, something that happened. I don't know what to tell you, man.
2: There was a lot of self-serving. There was—I don't want to say self-serving. There was a lot of compromise. I think in laying out this format, I would imagine uh, again creatively. I didn't do it, but I can only imagine. Can you imagine i mean you've look the stuff that you've done, starcast now we're coming up on the fifth one you know you got to accommodate people to yes. a certain degree yes and and that's at a that's at a convention can you imagine the kind of accommodation that had to be made when laying out matches and finishes <laughs> with a lot of these guys, partly because you know nobody wants to look bad this may be the last time anybody's ever going to see them on television they know that and partly it's because of the relationships. It took relationships to get this group of people to the to WCW in the first place. And now you're going to come in and you've got to accommodate them and you've got to compromise creatively. It had to be a freaking nightmare, I'm sure.
0: So up next is Thunderbolt Patterson who's 54 teaming with Brad Armstrong who's 31 taking on Baron Von Rasky at 52 and Ivan Koloff at 56. Um yeah, it gets a half a star. It's kind of not awesome. Um, but Baron
2: Baron was never, you know, Baron was uh, an amateur wrestler in Nebraska. Did you know that? Yes. It's not that Baron didn't have the ability. He did a technical ability, probably more than a lot of guys that he worked with. But Baron's character, he was that. God, I don't even. You know, we're in such a weird culture now that you want to say it, but the character he portrayed was that Nazi-esque German heel. Yes. He, he was never, at the, at the peak of his career, he was never a technical wrestler, although he had as much ability or more than probably 90% of the people that he worked with, but that wasn't his character. Now, pack about 20 years on him or 30 years on him, It is what it is. You're not there to watch a technical wrestling match. You're there to, I guess, you were there to experience the nostalgia and just seeing these stars from, you know, your childhood one more time in the ring. Anybody that expected a great match out of Baron Radoski shouldn't have been watching it anyway.
0: So you know, of course, originally this was supposed to be Bob Armstrong, but they announced that he'd suffered a knee injury. Actually, it's a cracked sternum and a fractured wrist. But either way. They're going to come out, and the heels are, and call the Armstrongs cowards. So Brad, who's only 31, runs down in his street clothes and joins Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt pins the Baron after the old double chop. And out next is the Flare for the Gold to reintroduce the reuniting of the original Four Horsemen. Meltzer would say, of the five Flare segments that have aired thus far, this was easily the worst. Let me just explain Flare for the Gold. It's my understanding that when Vince McMahon granted the release uh, to uh, to Ric Flair to go back to WCW, he that just meant he couldn't wrestle on TV for a certain amount of time. So he could still appear on TV. So we created this whole Flair for the Gold segment. That gets him on TV, keeps some, some interest. We can start to build some story. And then when the time is right, he can wrestle. Is that the way you remember it?
2: I don't remember that. I don't remember the details of, you know, Ric Flair coming back to WCW. I wasn't a part of the process. Uh, but I did like the flair for the gold. Whatever the reason was behind it, and I'll just, I'll, 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 I'll accept Dave's reporting on this one because I don't know differently. Um, it worked out great. I think those flair for the gold segments reestablished Rick in a phenomenal way. Uh, I thought they were entertaining as hell. Rick was amazing at them. And the Flair for the Gold segments were all Dusty Rhodes. That was Dusty's creation. And I I think they were phenomenal. So whatever the reason was behind it, it played out probably better in many respects than having Rick come back and just jump right into the competition, so to speak. Because this set him apart, made him different than everybody else at a very high level.
0: So Flair announces Tully Blanchard has snubbed the reunion, but brought in Paul Roma as the newest horseman to say that announcement bombed would be an understatement. Blanchard was announced as going to appear on TV the day before the show and was all over radio and TV ads in the Atlanta market. Even though it had been known for weeks, he turned down the offer a major corporation like this should be a lot more honest in the way it advertises events. Even though Roma has a lot of talent, he was a longtime WWF jobber and later a mid-card level heel on a tag team that never contended for the titles. Based on reaction here, this didn't elevate Roma to a new level as much as it really deflated the horseman name. Flair did mention in passing that he was going to put on the trunks again and face the Hollywood Blondes, but no emphasis was put on a match where it was being put in a position of three weeks being the key factor in television ratings for a major primetime special. So Roma as a horseman, you know, uh, just this, maybe it was two weeks ago. Now, Bruce and I recorded the Hercules episode, uh, for Mr. Hercules run in the WWF. And I loved power and glory. I thought Paul Roma was excellent as a tag team partner for Hercules. Uh, I loved power and glory. One of my favorite tag teams from back in that era. I love their finisher. Uh, which is like a a superplex off the top rope and then a top rope splash immediately after FTR had done it uh, several times over in NXT and just great stuff. But for whatever reason, man, a lot of old school horseman fans, man, they just hated the Paul Roma endorsement here. What'd you think of the presentation? I mean, he's a good looking dude. He's a capable wrestler. I don't see why people hated it as hard as they did, but they did.
2: In my, I'll give you my opinion, and, and I, I didn't hate it either. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. I didn't grow up watching the Four Horsemen, right? You know, the, I, they were off my radar in Minnesota. They didn't exist in my mind in Minnesota. They didn't exist on my television in Minnesota. So I wasn't. I didn't have the attachment to the Four Horsemen concept, and 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 I didn't. I just didn't have any relationship with the Four Horsemen. So to me, Paul Roma coming in, um, it didn't offend me as much as it did, obviously, a lot of people who had been fans of the Four Horsemen for so long. And I certainly understand why it didn't work for them and why they were against it. But in that moment, and I understand it a lot better now, obviously, but in that moment when it was happening, I didn't quite get the disconnect as much as everybody else because I didn't grow up watching them.
0: So next up, we've got Dory Funk managing Gene Kineski, uh, or he's managed by Gene Kineski and he goes to a 15 minute time limit draw right in the middle of the show here, match number five. So it's Dory Funk at 51, going to this 15 minute draw with Nick Bockwinkle at 58. Bockwinkle has Vern in his corner. Uh, Dory has Gene in his corner and Meltzer would say this was pushed at the last minute as a battle of the NWA versus the AWA from the seventies. When both held the world titles of their respective organizations, although not at the same time, it was an old style exchanging holds wrestling. And for what they were doing, it was really good, but it got no crowd reaction and drew boring chance. Just 10 minutes in Kaniski, who's 69 did a run in right near the finish. When Bach had funk in a figure, figure four. And even though there was little reaction to the match itself, the fans gave both men a very appreciative ovation after the match two and a quarter stars, you know, the, the old school fan and you had to love seeing funk, Kaniski, Bachwinkle, Ganya. That's pretty cool for nostalgia's sake. Is it not?
2: Oh, I, I mean, I was a mark for, I was just, a, I was just a kid again. I was 15 years old, you know, in my mind at the time, enjoying every second of it, I, you know, to this day, there's very few wrestlers that I hold in as high esteem as I do Nick Bockwinkle. Um, He was just one of the best of the best. Not as well known as many, but man, he was so good. He was so good on the mic. He was so good in the ring. So for me, I marked out, man, I was 15 years old watching this all go down. I could not have been happier.
0: Uh, between the matches, there's an interview segment with you and Lethes and Bob Geigel, but they misspell Bob Geigel's name on uh, on the screen. But man, how cool is that? I mean, what high regard Bob Geigel's held in a, as an NWO promoter and, and the president of the NWA, and 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 then Lethes, my goodness, I mean, actual wrestling royalty here. Um, even though maybe it wasn't a huge financial success. It is pretty cool to be able to celebrate those guys like this.
2: And just to be able to meet, I had met Bob Geigle previously, um, and tons of respect for him. I mean, he was a big part of wrestling success in his era as a promoter, but to be able, you know, you talked about earlier, you know, I had a chance to meet Sylvester Stallone. And the fact that I probably watched Rocky, the first Rocky movie seven times, that was kind of a cool thing, you know, cause there's still a fan in me that point but to be able to meet Luthez, come on took, you took you you said it exactly right man that is wrestling who is very few people held in higher regard in this industry than luthes and just to be able to be a part of that and do an interview with him it's pretty
0: badass totally agree Next up, we got Rick Rude and Paul Orndorf beating uh, Dustin Rhodes and Kintsuki Sasaki in 9.41. Meltz would say Orndorf was in rough shape with a pulled groin muscle and had missed the last group of house shows. He was nowhere near 100%, as you could see the pain every time he took a step. Sasaki was acknowledged as half of the tag team, at the Hellraisers, with Hawk. The match was okay, but below what you would expect from these four. The hottest spots were Rhodes missing a tackle and flying over the top rope. And later Rhodes reversing a, a rude tombstone pile driver into one of his own. Sasaki made the hot tag and did a few clotheslines and then went to the top rope. Sasaki had to wait too long for Orndorff to shove him off, which was the pre-finish and then turned the wrong way when rude tried the rude awakening. So the finish just came off sloppy. Two stars. This feels like a major communication issue and obviously Orndorff hurting. This match just seems snake bit, a lot of capable performers, but just, uh, less than ideal. Well,
2: I, I don't know if you've ever had a pulled
0: guard. I've only had
2: one when I was doing a lot of kickboxing and it might've been other than a broken rib may have Been may have been one of the most painful injuries I've ever had and, and, and that would have a lot of impact on the match because you're working around an injury. That's almost impossible to work around.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine.
2: Horrible, horrible, horrible. Hell getting up and going to the bathroom is a major challenge depending on the severity of it. So getting into the ring, I mean, that's probably more of a testament to how tough Paul Orndorff was than anything else.
0: Next came the announcement of the first four members of the WCW hall of fame. Who were Lou Thez Vern Ganya, Mr. Wrestling number two, and Eddie Graham. They showed old newspaper clippings of all of them as Gordon Soly listed some of their accomplishments. This segment was great. Even though picking those four as the first four names has already become a source of numerous debates. Thez and Ganya no question at all, but two and Graham, if this is based on international stardom and impact. They should not have been picked ahead of people like Ric Flair, Dory Funk, Gene Kiniski, Buddy Rogers, Gorgeous George, Harley Race, Ricky Dozan, Bruno San Martino, Dusty Rhodes, and numerous others. Listen, on the one hand, I understand uh, if we wanted to pretend that, oh, someone else should have been first. But at the end of the day, Eric, and I'm not trying to minimize this, where did you guys build the WCW Hall of Fame? What was the physical address of the WCW Hall of Fame? Um, it was a phantom.
2: It was an, it was an imaginary, it was a virtual hall that one, we were the very first virtual hall of fame.
0: It was in the metaverse Take, by God.
2: Yeah. Virtual. It was virtual. We were so far ahead of our time. So far ahead of our time. It was virtually a figment of somebody's imagination.
0: I'm not saying this to be dismissive. Cause I don't mean for it to, I, I just think. Man, isn't it a nice thing that we can honor these legends, hand them a plaque, you know, show some of their accomplishments on TV, let them wave to the crowd and collect a payday in the process. We're showing, you know, proper respect to, to those who paved the way, so to speak. I don't really get too caught up in, well, this person should have been in ahead of that person because that insinuates that someone in this equation is is not deserving or less deserving isn't everyone deserving of some admiration and respect and appreciation for their contributions? Like to me, it just well,
2: was... I mean, let's just talk. First of all, I agree with you a thousand percent. I agree with you and it's subjective. Yeah. So take, take, take Ric Flair out of the equation. You're not going to put somebody in the hall of fame. Who's an active member of the roster. I think yeah. that's a mistake. Yeah. Okay. Number one. So that, that observation I think is flawed. Um, but it's so subjective. Now, you could say among that list, you could pick up Bob Geigel and say, well, why is he in there ahead of this guy? Or take Eddie Graham. Why was he in there in front of this guy? Well, what impact did Eddie Graham have on professional wrestling here in the United States? I would suggest that it was significant. Why wouldn't you put him in the Hall of Fame? And to suggest that they should go in order, Based on one person's, or maybe if there's a panel of three, so you have one person or a panel of three, or however many, decide, okay, let's, let's rate these, let's rate these legends according to their significance and bring them in order. The kind of, how offensive is that to, to the last four or the last two? Putting them at the bottom of a list. Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that if, if you just wouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. So mixing him up, not in order of significance, I think was the appropriate thing to do.
0: I totally agree.
2: That's what you want to do. You want to bring somebody in as a legend. You want to bring them out on a pay-per-view. You want them to feel good. You want to acknowledge them for their contribution. And then you basically want to say, look, you're at the bottom of the list, motherfucker. You're lucky you should be here. We should make you pay your own way for the privilege of being in the ring. Because you really do, you know, compared to these other guys, you don't mean shit. What a fucked up way to think. Sorry. Next Try up
0: Sting's going to beat the prisoner, Kevin Wachholz, in five minutes and 16 seconds after a clothesline off the top rope. Fans chanted bullshit when they saw Nails come out instead of Norton. This was a waste of Sting. Negative one star. I mean, I feel bad for WCW. You know, if, if they couldn't get Norton to do business, they've got to have some sort of last minute replacement. The audience, if they watch the WWF is least familiar with this character. And they introduce him as being from green Bay, Wisconsin, which is certainly a little tongue in cheek fun since <laughs> that's where he choked Vince McMahon. And I don't know, maybe this is short-sighted and it's juvenile and it's silly, but also too, it's kind of, you know, putting WCW in a, all right, what can we do as a make good It is what it is. I, you know, I don't,
2: I, it's not like Norton is a good friend of mine. So I want to be careful how I say this.
0: He wasn't an established main
2: eventer at that point. No, Norton was not a household name. No, I, I, I don't think that if there was a negative fan reaction, it's because there was such a high degree of anticipation to see Scott Norton, not 1993. Come on now. So I, I don't know what that was all about. and I don't know what Dave's commentary was based on, but if there was a negative reaction, I doubt it was because of disappointment in not seeing, maybe they just didn't like nails.
0: Well, nobody liked nails. Just,
2: the reaction could have been that, like I said, I don't think that anybody was pissed off because there was a
0: change at the last minute. Let, let me say again, nobody likes nails. And nobody likes credit card debt. And that's what we're happy to help you with over at SaveWithConrad.com. guys. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but all of a sudden your house is worth more than ever. Just this past week, I saw someone's appraisal come back for more than a hundred grand than even what we guessed. Think about that. That family now has a net worth of a hundred grand more than they even knew about, but what are you going to do with all that newfound equity? Well, here's what we suggest at SaveWithConrad.com. What if we combine all your other debt? Yes, I mean all of it. I'm talking credit cards, car loans, whatever you got. Get it down into one low monthly payment. In the process, we're going to save you a whole boatload of cash. But what if, and hear me out, what if we could take your 30-year loan and pay it off in half the time? If you could pay your house off faster, why wouldn't you? And ask yourself this, how old am I going to be when I pay my house off? If you don't know the answer, you probably haven't done enough planning for that. Let's not wait until our kids turn 15 to say, they're going to need a car next year or (laughs) wait until our kids are seniors in high school to say, we got to pay for college next year. Let's get in front of those expenses and let's make sure we've got a handle on them. We don't want to saddle those kids with student loans. We can help you think about all of your goals, both short-term and long-term at savewithconrad.com. But here's a word to the wise. If you're in a 30-year loan, if you've got credit card debt, if you've got a second mortgage, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It really is a matter of how much. Why not find out for free right now at savewithconrad.com? NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And again, no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you some money, we won't waste your time. And did I mention you can skip your next two house payments? And oh, by the way, if you're looking for some cash to turn your house into your dream house, you know, upgrade that kitchen, upgrade that bathroom, maybe put in a pool. We can help you with that too, with cheaper monthly payments, save with Conrad.com. Now, Eric, the last three matches are just outstanding. They really are. You got the Hollywood Blondes taking on dos hombres, which are Rick steamboat and Tom Zink under masks. And this is a 16 minute and five second match. Very, very good match. And they get three and a half stars. Uh, Meltzer would say overall, a very good match with them creatively using the cage. At the finish, Steamboat took off his mask so everyone would know it wasn't Steamboat doing the job since he's going to be pushed as a singles challenger for the NWA title now, and he did a spectacular crossbody off the top of the cage onto both men. The ref counted two and the bell rang, seemingly to signify a title change. It got real confusing from there since the match was restarted and several near falls until Austin hit the stun gun on zinc for the pin three and a half stars. So really... Uh, a pretty fun match here. A lot of talented performers. Think about that. Brian Pillman, Steve Austin, Tom Zink, and Ricky Steamboat. Of course they can do their stuff. Uh, I also want to mention that it's pointed out on commentary twice that there's two men in suits taking notes. Those two guys were Barry Bloom, who at the time is Jesse Ventura's agent, and Mitch Ackerman uh, of Walt Disney's television division. I think it's kind of fun, a a nice little footnote that we can pick them out of the audience and and Tony can't help, but mention them in commentary as well. This is a fun match, man.
2: Just imagining
0: the level of talent in that ring. Yeah. Phenomenal.
2: And, you know, that's 1993. And, you know, you look at where those guys went on, you know, in their careers, you know, unfortunately we lost Pillman. I, I think Pillman was not even at his prime uh, when when we lost him, but obviously Stone Cold Steve Austin in his own way really changed the industry. I think Stone Cold Steve Austin, as a result of his storyline with Mike Tyson and Vince McMahon and the dramatic change in the direction of WWE and the fact that Steve Austin was right there in the center of it all, has to be recognized as a very, very pivotal player in the entire industry, not just in WWE. So it's fun, you know, to go back and look at this stuff and talk about it, knowing where these guys all went on, you know, to land in their careers or some of them,
0: Eric, these last, uh, few matches are just absolutely fantastic. And and once we're done with the Hollywood blondes match, dusty Rhodes comes out, does an interview with you accepting assassins challenge, anytime, any place. He's along with, uh, Mr. Wrestling number two with Stu Hart. Who's talking about being there to see his son-in-law win the championship. And, uh, Meltzer would say, I think Stu Hart is the only individual in the wrestling business who can be acknowledged and appear on pay-per-view shows for both the WWF and WCW. Uh, and he wondered how comes, how come Rhodes didn't wrestle in one of the legends matches. Do you have an answer for that? Why didn't Dusty jump in the ring for one of these?
2: I don't know. He certainly could have had he wanted to. He, he was writing it. That was Dusty's show. So th- there must have been a reason, but I don't know what it was. I, I really don't. Maybe he, maybe Dusty felt that, you know, he had enough to do, you know, wrangling and, and hurting these squirrels. <laughs> they were his peers, by the way, but he was the booker. So he, he probably felt that there was a conflict of interest.
0: Next I'm up guessing. a pretty special, I, I, you know, listen, I don't know, Dusty. I only met Dusty twice ever, but I feel like Dusty probably thought if I'm going to come back and wrestle, it's going to be me as the old timer coming back on my own. I'm not going to be amongst the 12 other old timers who are wrestling. Cause I don't want to be, I, I,
2: I think that is a good observation and a, probably a valid reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, Hey, I can do this anytime. Let these guys do it right now. I don't want to be one of them. I want to be special in my own focus if I do it. So
2: again, that would have been smart. Yeah.
0: Great. I mean, listen, he had a, we know he was very, very smart to the wrestling business. So let's talk about Arn Anderson, right? You and I have talked about how you go back and you look at his stuff and you just think, golly, how good was he? This is as far as I know, the only time he challenged for the NWA title on TV Maybe ever. He's going to be challenging Barry Wyndham here for the NWA title. They go 10 minutes and 56 seconds. And Meltzer said very good action, hampered by a lame finish, and that the fact they should have allotted these two five more minutes. Wyndham juiced at five minutes from a guardrail shot. Lots of big bumps by both men. Anderson through referee Randy Anderson, allowing Wyndham to sneak up from behind and nail him with a title belt and score the pin. Three and a half stars. I mean,. What a cool thing it would have been to see Arn Anderson win the NWA title. But it is fun just to know that when he finally got a shot, it was with a fellow horseman on pay per view. Two naturals, man. Fun stuff.
2: I wonder why, Connor, you've done a lot of podcasts with Arn. You probably know Arn now better than I ever did.
0: Does Arn have an opinion
2: why he never won that NWA title? Has that ever come up?
0: Well, he was riding shotgun for Ric Flair. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for Scottie Pippen to be the man when he's on the same team as Michael Jordan. And
2: everybody does it bother aren't to the state? Nope.
0: It, does not it at all. About it? He refers right. to the television title as his world title.
2: That's great. I love hearing that. Yeah. Really glad to hear that. It's yeah. a healthy way to look at it.
0: Next up it's Davey boy Smith and big van Vader for the WCW title match. Uh, Vader's going to be working with a cracked rib here. Uh, Davey boy wins, but it's by DQ. So he doesn't win the belt and Meltzer gave it three and a quarter stars or three and three quarter stars. Uh, here's what he says. Vader went up for a superplex, but Smith reversed it and dropped him forward into the ring. Then the uh, diving headbutt, which saw both men sell after a few more near falls, Vader delivered a splash from the top, but started selling his own sternum. The finish saw Vader go for a crunch in the corner, but Smith caught him coming in and planted him with his finishing power slam. However, Harley race broke up the pin. Smith goes out of the ring, beats up race. Vader attacks him from behind with a chair. And that's the DQ after the match. Vader was beating on Smith and nailed both Bagwell and Scorpio who did run-ins then went for the power bomb when sting made the save another great match hampered by a cheap finish. This match should have established Smith as a serious main eventer for WCW. And when it all comes out in the observer, it got 36.6% of thumbs up. 33.2% 33.2% thumbs down and 30.2% thumbs in the middle. Overall, Eric, this legends reunion does between a 0.3 and a point four buy rate, which makes it the lowest buy rate for any pay-per-view in history. It says the total gross for WCW would be around 800 grand, uh, which wouldn't be the lowest because you bumped it up to a 2495 price tag, as opposed to a 1995 price tag you had on some of the lower performing shows of 1992. But overall, if you had it to do over again, do you think this legends reunion thing was worth a shot? I do. I like it. I just wish maybe an execution. We had more focus on the introduction and I don't know a little more pomp and circumstance. Does that make sense?
2: I, I think the, I think the potential was, I think the idea was a great idea. I think the execution was piss poor and I would love to have the opportunity to go back and do this one over again cuz it could have been so much better given the people that were there. You know, I mean I just think it could have been awesome and it certainly was not.
0: I'm really pumped about uh doing some questions here, and then we'll preview what we're doing next week. Uh, and of course we got to remind you that GoliathLife.com makes buying life insurance easy. If you don't have any, you need some, you have car insurance to protect your car. You have medical insurance to protect yourself from a big bill. What are your fam? What's your family going to do with their bills without your income? Life insurance isn't about you, bro. It's about peace of mind for your family. We want you to go to GoliathLife.com as opposed to anywhere else because you can get 20 quotes within minutes. That's right. They'll get you quotes from 20 different carriers within minutes. You'll pick your terms and your payments to fit your budget. And once you pick your price, then you do the application. It's all online. If there is medical stuff needed, hell, they'll come to you. They did it for me, but you need life insurance. Just get a quick quote. It's free. What have you got to lose? It's goliathlife.com. Adam Leeson wants to know, why did WCW management go with Paul Roma? I know that you weren't necessarily totally involved in that, but do you imagine Eric, this is something where you knew Roma was coming in anyway. And it just made sense to pivot when the whole Tully thing goes sideways.
2: I wasn't, not only was I not totally involved, I wasn't even remotely involved in the discussions or the decision. So I can't tell you, I I'm, I could guess, you know, and. Perhaps it's because the perception of Roma because of his WWE association was enough to convince people it was a good idea. But I honestly, I can't tell you. I I, I can't. It was like, I didn't even know who Paul Roma was when they brought him in because I wasn't watching WWE at the time. I wasn't aware of it.
0: Yam Bag Jones wants to know, cause you were there that night. What was a bigger fart in church in person? Paul Roma in the horseman or the prisoner? I think the prisoner.
2: Yeah, no doubt.
0: Uh, here's one. Um, and this is a great question from Greg. Do you think this would have been better suited as a clash of the champions or a special WCW Saturday night instead of a pay-per-view?
2: Great, great question. Thanks for, for asking it. It would have been a great WCW Saturday night show. It would have been an over the top, fantastic WCW Saturday night show. Definitely not a Clash of the Champions. There's a lot of pressure on Clash of the Champions to perform. You know, and it did. You know, you had a pretty high bar with the Clash of the Champions. But I think as a WCW Saturday night show and a tribute show, it would have been phenomenal.
0: Uh, up next. And I'm excited for this one. We're going to be talking about Lex Luger's run from 1995 to 1997. That's going to include bringing Lex back into the company, his hesitation, your hesitation, how that all came to be the dungeon of doom connection. Lex versus Hulk. Of course, the hokey pokey angle you guys did with is Lex with sting or is he not? He's going to be a main player in the WCW NWO war. On the 100th Nitro, he beats Hulk Hogan for the world title in a moment people are still stoc- talking about. The whole story with DDP, Kurt Henning, Buff Bagwell, the relationship with Sting, just a lot of great stuff coming your way next week as we break down Lex's run from 95 to 97. And then we'll do a Nitro watch along from June 9th, 1997, where you announce it'll be Hulk Hogan teaming with Dennis Rodman to take on Lex Luger and the Giant at Bash at the Beach. Uh, the week after that, we'll be covering one night stand 05, where you played a really big role in that, uh, Vince McMahon, bringing back ECW for just that one show with Paul Heyman. You're essentially the central heel here in the building that night. Of course, we'll talk about what happened with JBL and the blue mini. And then man, we've got a lot more coming your way. Aces and eights nitro from June 30th, 97, where Kurt Henning debuts, Kevin Nash's 99. And then we'll finally be discussing Bash at the Beach 1997, where it's Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman taking on Lex Luger and the Giant. You got Piper versus Flair on the undercard, Kurt making his WCW debut. Sullivan had been won a retirement match. We're going to have a lot of fun in the coming weeks here, Eric. And you get all these shows early and ad-free over at adfreeshows.com. And we hope if you haven't already, you'll go check out Starcast.com because, dude, we got some big plans for you. And uh all of our adfree shows dot com brethren. We're gonna be there doing our thing and man, a whole host of others. This is gonna be a destination, Nashville, July twenty-ninth, thirtieth, and thirty-first, is it not? It is.
2: It's one of the things I I'm really looking forward to this. I've I've had fun at the previous Starcasts, and every time you and your team, you know, put on an event like this, it seems to get better than the one prior to it. But you guys have outdone yourself on this one. This is going to be one that people are going to be talking about for a long, long time, and rightfully so. So I'm, hey, man, whether I'm, you know, help putting up chairs at the venue or helping in catering, because I'm really, I know my catering, brother. And if we've got to do some catering, I'm happy to be on that team too. But at at any level, it'll be a fun one to participate in.
0: Check it out, 83weeks.com, anywhere you enjoy your podcast. Hit the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review if you think we've earned it. Check out adfreeshows.com, and by God, make plans to join us in Nashville at the end of July at starcast.com. We'll see you next week talking all things Lex Luger from 1995 to 1997 right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.